0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Confident
1: in telling you that we are tagged out because I just smoked that deer. (laughs) Nice job.
0: It's been really tough hunting, to be honest with you.
1: You're listening to the Scree Country Podcast. Mike, um, I know your season just opened. We are, uh, we're looking to run this episode while the topic of the western mule deer archery hunting is at the top of a lot of people's minds. So we have an awesome episode lined up. First of all, before we introduce uh, who's joining us here today, Mike, have you I know your season just opened up. What are you hearing? And um kind of give us a, a State of the Union from very, very early on out west.
2: Yeah, you bet. Um, well, as you know, Nevada's open, uh, Utah's now open. Um, and and from there it's really just kind of a domino effect. uh, uh Colorado opens next week. Um <clears throat> And really, by the first of September, pretty much the the entire Rocky Mountain West is open to archery hunting. And uh, there's already some great bucks that are hitting the ground. Um, last year was, I don't know, I felt like as a, as a mule deer hunter, last year was brutal. Um, it was tough. It was just, it was tough to find a good buck. Um, and I think that was kind of the general consensus throughout the the West. Um, but there are bigger bucks being harvested this year. So I, I, I think that's hopefully a great thing, a great sign of things to come. Um, I actually went mule deer hunting, uh, yesterday morning and, uh, I'm, I'm actually seeing some better bucks, uh, than I did last year. So, so hopefully, hopefully that's a s- sign of good things to come. And I, I think, uh, I think this year's going to be a pretty good year in Nevada, um, they're, they're hammering some giants in Nevada right now. Uh, Utah has actually put some some pretty big bucks on the ground in in the last week. So, so I, let I, me, think, uh, I think yeah. Let, go ahead. Let me
1: ask you something. I, I'm I'm obviously representing a a different part of the hunting culture and geography with with our dynamic here on the podcast. But I do keep up, and I'm coming out west in September for the first time. But I keep hearing. Uh, When people talk specifically about mule deer, and I know that the two guests that we have on here today are are certainly going to have an opinion about this, and I'll I'll be interested to hear it. But I want to hear from you. I've heard a lot about um, people referring to the fact that there's a general decline in the age structure and overall harvest of mature, bigger mule deer that's been a trend. What, what's the reasoning behind that? I don't know enough about it to,
2: well, and, and, and and this is something that I would love to hear from our guests about. And we'll actually kind of conclude our podcast today and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I, I mean, CWD is is kind of rampant right now in, in Colorado. At least that's what we're being told. Um, And, and consequently, again, I'm not a biologist. I don't have all the answers, but, they're, they're killing a lot of mule deer. That's, that's essentially their response you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but they're, they're issuing a lot more tags to try and get in front of CWD. And, and then we've, we've been in a prolonged drought here in the West. I mean, it's been incredibly dry that, that can um, have adverse effects on fawn crops, but mule deer are not thriving in the West, unfortunately. Um, it's kind of sad to see i mean i think there's some i think there's some great things happening and in response to that i know here in southern utah uh where i do the bulk of my my hunting in my own state i mean they've they've cut tags significantly so i think you know that is one way to to respond to um to the struggling deer herds but you know there there's a lot of other things and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that because i am I'm, I'm very interested to hear from our guests on that so we'll we'll kind of probably close with that topic but uh i my opinion is is, is mule deer kind of been in big trouble in the last few years i've noticed a decline uh, a decline in trophy quality and a de- decline in overall numbers and so anyway we'll uh we'll we'll uh we'll hear from our guests towards uh, the conclusion of this podcast but but yeah, it's, it, it's not the same situation you guys have with, with whitetail in, in the East where whitetail are thriving. Um, our mule deer are a little bit, uh, I mean, they're just, they I don't know if it's that they're not hardy, but they just don't respond to, you know, areas that are being overcome with suburban communities on, on the winter range. There's, there's just so many things that, that are working against mule deer that, uh, that it's it just doesn't bode well for, for their it's uh, odd for their the health of the herd.
1: It's herb. odd because it's a totally different um species, but it sounds a lot like turkey to me. Turkeys are not responding well to the changes. I think in in the east and in the south especially with uh fragmentation of of uh expansive land and habitat habitat management the lack of any fur bearing market uh really existing so it's interesting because you're right i feel like you can pretty much drop a white tail deer almost anywhere and and they won't just survive they thrive on under under the most ridiculous circumstances so it, it's interesting well let's not keep let's not the point i just I, I i've been listening to some mule deer podcast and kind of educating myself a little bit knowing that we were going to talk mule deer a lot here this time of the year and and i keep hearing that you know well we're not seeing the quality we're not seeing as many trophy bucks we're not seeing the quantity and i so it's an interesting point but uh and like you said i'm sure that our conversation will get into a lot of those things but for now i want you to introduce our guests i'm excited about this episode we have a couple of great guests to join the conversation
2: You bet. Well, I just wanted to once again welcome everyone um, for yet another Street Country podcast. You're in for a great podcast today. If you're a mule deer aficionado like I am, um, you're, uh, you're, you're probably familiar with our two guests, Randy Omer and David Long. And I believe it's fair to say that Randy is one of the most accomplished bow hunters in the world. He's uh, he's won a world he's won world and national titles in a lot of different venues. In 1999, he was inducted into the Bowhunters Hall of Fame. And I think, for me personally, what's even more impressive than than all those accolades is, frankly, the sheer number of of giant archery mule deer that he's put on the ground over the last three decades. Um, and then our other guest, David Long's name, is also very synonymous with mule deer. David has authored three books about mule deer, Public Land Muley's The Edge and Wyoming's Finest Mule Deer, and uh, David also has taken a handful of, of giant mule deer, and I've, <clears throat> I've actually been fortunate to, to read a lot of David's books, and uh, anyway, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast.
3: Hey, thanks for having us on.
2: Well, Randy, let's let's get started with you. Um, like I say, I've always been an admirer of your accomplishments, and have just been incredibly impressed with the number of, of giant mule deer that you've taken over the years. You've also taken some pretty big elk as well. Um, give us a give us a brief introduction, and then tell us about how you got so involved in the archery world. Um, and, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming one of the world's most accomplished bow hunters. I'm my, my guess is you didn't wake up one morning as a youth and say, man, I want to be one of the greatest bow hunters in the world. There's probably a, an evolution there. So kind of walk us through that.
4: Well, I grew up in rural Northeastern Arizona and, uh, my family hunted a lot. Um, and we lived kind of in the middle of nowhere, so I grew up hunting meal there. And I grew up shooting a bow just for fun, just old recurve. And my brother and I, when we were 18 or 19, bought compound bows when they first came out. And uh, we really didn't have anybody around um, to show us how to shoot or, or um, teach us, you know, how to shoot a bow correctly. But we shot together together. Uh, and we were very competitive with one another. And as I, uh, I got through veterinary school and, uh, I moved back to Arizona and uh, I joined an archery league and I really didn't know. I'd never really shot with anybody other than my brother. And, um, I joined an archery league and found out that, uh, that I was actually pretty good. And, um, the guys there were competitive archers and they said, man, you should come to the state championship. And so I did, and I won. And it was very quickly. Uh, I, I went from, you know, shooting state championships to shooting national championships, um, and then, uh, on to world championships. And, uh, so, uh, and all, all during that time, of course I was hunting and, I've always been fascinated by big mule deer. And I, I wasn't very successful the first two decades of my mule deer hunting career, but I was really successful on on big elk, mainly because Arizona has big elk. And in my opinion, uh, older age class elk are easier to take than older age class mule deer. But I was better, uh, I was probably a lot better at elk hunting for the first 10 or 15 years Uh, than I was mule deer hunting but but I was fascinated by mule deer and gradually over time uh, I kind of you'll never figure out mule deer but I kind of figured out what not to do um, and eventually uh, started becoming more successful uh, on mule deer and and my fascination with mule deer you know led me to uh, hunting out of state so I started hunting in uh, other states when the opportunity when I drew a tag like I'd I really enjoyed hunting Nevada in the late 90s and, the, and well, actually up till just recently uh, when the trophy quality has really, really slipped. And uh, and I started hunting Colorado uh, as often as I could about, oh, 17 or 18 years ago. And I've hunted Colorado almost every year since, um, either drawing a tag or buying a landowner tag. And uh, so I just thoroughly enjoy it. And I'm I'm in a point in my life and my career where I'm able to take a lot of time off. And so uh, there's nothing I enjoy more than backpacking and and scouting for deer. So I spend the majority of my summer just up in the woods um, looking for deer. And that's, I spent the night up at 12,000 feet last night and uh, had to race home off the mountain this morning to get here for this podcast. So it's just what I love to do. I love to look for, I love to look for deer.
2: Well, that's awesome, Randy. And, and, and as I remember it, you mentioned something about elk. That's interesting. You kind of got your start with elk. I know at one time you had, I, I believe you had the world, uh, the the state record in Nevada. Is that, you? you still hold that record did they, or did you get dethroned?
4: No, as far as I know, it's still uh, as of a couple of years ago. Anyway, when last time I looked at the book, it's still the the state record. Um, so I I really and I that was like two thousand and three, um, and I since we're talking to mule deer, I've kind of glossed over elk, but uh, and and with I guess the notoriety of mule deer, uh my elk hunting is kind of. Uh, not too many people know about it, but I truly, truly enjoy hunting big elk as well um, and having lived in Arizona my whole life, uh, arizona 's always been at the forefront of 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 big elk and there 's almost all public land in arizona, so i 've had a lot of great opportunities you know since my youth to chase big elk and and i 've done it every year i 've got a tag.
2: Yeah, and you've you've killed some tremendous elk, some absolute giant elk with your uh, with your bow. But it sounds like maybe would, would it be safe to say that elk have taken a bit of a backseat to mule deer recently, or or in maybe in in recent years?
4: Well, no. I mean, I shot a net boon and Crockett bull last year in Arizona, and a net boon and Crockett bull the year before in Arizona. So they just don't get the notoriety, um, right? of, of the mule deer. Um, yeah, I, I've got a stack of them, but they just, you know, there's so many, I guess there's so many big elk killed on, uh, uh, you know, in the West, uh, and elk are easier to kill with a bow in my opinion. So there's more big elk. So, and people are fascinated with big mule deer, I think, because they're so difficult. I mean, if you, if you think about what kind of the epitome or the pinnacle of, Of bow hunting is I'd say for the vast majority of people it's killing a you know a big mule deer with your bow just because it's so difficult so I think you just get more notoriety for that than you do for elk
2: right and I would say and I, I I've said this on previous podcasts because I am a a dyed in the wool mule deer hunter I mean it doesn't doesn't mean I haven't hunted other critters. Um, I just enjoy hunting. I enjoy getting out, but uh, yeah, there's just something about mule deer. And I have, I've said this frequently that I, I really believe the, the Holy grail of hunting for me um, for mule deer hunting is, is taking a mature buck above timberline. I mean, there's just, there's just something magical about uh, being above timberline and, and seeing those magnificent animals and just their behavior. It's just it's it's incredibly addictive um, David let's uh, let's talk about your your books David you've you've divulged a lot of your tips and tactics um, in, in your books uh, of course one of those books is about um, all about Wyoming's finest mule deer and we'll talk a little bit about that but um, tell us what what is it about mule deer that is so captivating to you what what motivated you to write the books
3: you know it's <clears throat> The, re- the motivation for behind the book is, man, I just I love talking mule deer, you know, which is why we're here today. Uh, love sharing, you know, stories. And there's nothing to me, there's nothing better than helping someone else kill the buck in their dreams, you know. I mean, I almost enjoy seeing that more than I do killing a buck for myself anymore. So you know, when I first started out hunting, I hunted deer and elk, uh, but it didn't take me long to figure out, you know, mule deer was the path I was going to go down. That was before I was even out of high school. You know, I mean, I knew that mule deer was the thing. So, and also elk, I mean, they're just too big to pack out on your back. You know, I do all my hunting by backpack pretty much. So if I can't pack it out, you know, in one trip, I don't want any part of shooting the thing. So just, I don't want to pack that out. So it just gradually evolved over the years and. uh you know, I got tied in with Eastmans and started writing for them, and uh, they they approach actually approached me about writing a book. And you know, I told Mike and Guy says, you know, I'm really not ready to write a book right now, and so they kind of let it be. And then the next, finally, the next year, they approached me again and said, "Hey, let's let's do that book." So I, I agreed to it, and that's when we did the Public Land Muley's book. So, and that thing was tremendously successful. You know, uh, feel very fortunate that we sold so many copies of that and then you know later on had a lot of guys you know asking for more and more tips and the main reason for coming out with the edge my light just went off hopefully not too dark but uh the main reason for coming out with the edge is because the first book public land muleys didn't have any archery hunting in it you know it's since that book i had taken up archery and i became the uh, editor for the eastwood's bow hunting journal for a short period of time so uh, that kind of led to the edge. I really wanted to share a lot of the archery things that I learned while out there in the field. So that was the main motivation for the second book. And, and for those listeners, man, I'm telling you, if you, if you,
2: um, if you're new to, to hunting mule deer in the back country, man, uh, do yourself a favor, go buy David's books, especially if you're archery hunting, the edge, um, public land muleys is also um, one of my favorites. I actually was just kind of, perusing those books again, I've, I've read both of those cover to cover. And <clears throat> uh, like, like David said, I mean, he shared a lot of tips and tactics. Um, likewise, I, I've, I've, I've also uh, listened to a number of podcasts that, that Randy's been a part of. And I, I think that's really cool that, that you guys as, as bow hunters, as, you know, advocates for the sport that you're, that you're willing to share Um, information with others and so yeah
3: and I I know Randy you know he's a lifetime archer you know but I became an archery hunter out of necessity you know I mean I'm an opportunist and uh, drawing rifle tags in the west you know for good mule deer units is very tough and uh, it didn't take me long to figure out that I could buy an archery tag you know leftover tag and uh, have a good chance of killing a big mule deer so that's what I did you know I went to Mike Eastman and I said hey I just got this archery tag. I says, you want to send a cameraman in with me? We'll get it on the show. And I said, we can go in there and kill by a 200-incher, you know? And he's like, well, says, I highly doubt it'll be that easy. So he didn't want to send a cameraman with me. So I'm like, okay. So I went in there, and uh, sure enough, I killed a 200-incher with my bow the very first time out up there and uh gave him a call and said hey man here's here's a picture of the deer that i killed needless to say the next couple of years i had a cameraman with me in there so and we killed you know several other good deer in there so i mean it's just like i say, i'm an opportunist but i do love mule or archery hunting i mean the thing i love about archery is just like last night i was shooting the arrows off my deck you know it's something that's it's kind of calming you know it's therapy for me to just sit out in the yard and kind of shoot arrows so uh i really enjoy it and uh, but right now I'm hunting both archery and uh, rifle. So wherever I can get a tag.
2: That's awesome. Well, as you guys both know, spotting a, spotting a, a mule, you know, a giant mule deer <clears throat> is one thing, but stalking in to bow range, um, takes a pretty high level of execution and, and perseverance, especially at high altitudes. I mean, it, it, it really, um, is, is a test of mind, body and soul. So I'm going to have you guys both answer this question, but walk us through a stock. Um, Randy, you go first, and then David, we'd like to hear from, from you. What are, what are some of the things you've learned over the years about stocking into bow range of an animal, particularly a mule deer?
4: Well, first of all, I'd like to kind of give a, a nod to David's books. Uh, I've read them all and, and very, very informative. Uh, I would rec- highly recommend them to, to anyone that's interested in chasing mule deer period or especially big mule deer. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've if I know exactly how to stock a mule deer, but I, I've through the years I've discovered the hard way what not to do and and so usually it takes me four or five, six times doing something wrong before I figure out you know, not to do that anymore, but, um, some of the things, um, uh, well, I'll just say this. Um, I think the one thing that has finally come to me over the last, maybe 25 years is, um, is how to handle myself in the moment of truth. Uh, there's, you know, hunting mule deer, you spend, you know, maybe weeks or days or months scouting. And you find a good deer and then, uh, you know, you stalk them and you get within range. And uh, and most people are able to find a, a decent mule deer and they're able to stalk within, you know, reasonable archery range. But what, when the wheels start to fall off for most people, and like David said, I love to help other people um, on hunt. So I spend a lot of time watching and helping other bow hunters and seems to be the issue seems to always be that moment of truth. What actually happens during that last say 30 seconds. And I finally kind of figured out at least partially what to do and what not to do during that. Cause the stalking of the deer, um, you know, there's, there's so much information now, uh, like David's books and, and, um, there's so many videos and podcasts and, and magazine articles and the whole internet that really all the information you need to get the job done is out there. And, you know, when I started 40, 45 years ago, uh, none of that information is out there. So you're kind of doing it on your own. And, and the, 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 the thing that's not out there is, is really what to do, in that moment of truth, what to do in the last 30 seconds and, and what not to do and how to keep yourself composed. Um, so really the stalking is, you know, one, one thing I will say about stalking is if I find I'm usually hunting a deer that I've watched for a long, long, long time. And, and so, and oftentimes there's pressure from other hunters, uh on that deer because it's it's all public land and one of the things that that i found you need to do is you need to have patience you need to wait because most older age class bucks are very 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 sensitive to disturbance and what typically happens is if there's other hunters hunting the deer uh they get bumped pretty early on and and then you know, uh, like you said, my hunting in the high country is very tough on mind, body, and soul. And a lot of people like to read about it and they like to dream about it on the internet. But when it actually comes down to doing it, most people, you know, they come in maybe from the flatlands and they get up high and, and, you know, the weather's bad and, and there's not much oxygen. And most people kind of give up after a few days. But what I found is, is after the buck's been disturbed. If I'll just wait, um, you know, I'll sit on a deer for three or four or five days and then they'll reappear. And once they have and there's no more pressure, the, the key is waiting. Most people, as soon as they see a deer, they want to stalk it. And it takes a great deal of discipline to wait uh, even several days uh, for the deer to be in a, a position where there's a like, high likelihood of, of, of success. mean i've 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 laid on deer for as long as four days you know watching them you know most of the day or at least morning and evening before i finally before they make a mistake and get in a position where i think i have a high percentage uh opportunity to kill them so that's one of the things that i would suggest is don't just automatically stalk every deer that you see especially i mean if you're just hunting for you know an, an average buck it's no big deal you can hunt stock every deer you see when you see it. But if if you're looking for one particular deer, you're not going to get a lot of times not more than one opportunity to bump them. Uh, so you got to just be extremely careful and, 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 and wait for a high percentage opportunity to actually make your stock.
2: Would you say that, you know, now that you've paid your tuition over, you know, decades, would you say you probably do fewer stocks than you did say when you were a young buck?
4: Well now, um, okay. When I was first started bow hunting, um, I would say even 10 to 20 years in, I figured I had to make somewhere between somewhere around 15 stocks to have a success to kill a deer. And I've got that down now to where I would say, I'm over 50%. Wow. So there's always things that can go wrong, but I'm very, very, very selective about how I do it and, and what I do. And, and mainly because back then I, you know, any four point was, well, it depends on where, I mean, sometimes I'd shoot forked horns or does, but, you know, if it was a decent area, any four point was good. If, if it had four points on a side that I was going after it. Um, so, you know, I wasn't as selective about sp- stalks. But now I spend so much time looking for one deer, one big deer that uh, I just, I just don't want to scare him.
2: So in other words, you're, you're, you're not stalking a deer unless you, you, you know, based on your experience, the, the probability of killing that deer is significantly high.
4: Exactly. And it's, and again, it's because I'm hunting one deer and uh, I just, I've had so many Times when you you bump a deer, um, when you kind of get in their in their living room and you bump them, they don't like that, and they'll disappear for a few days. Um, so I just don't want them to disappear for a few days. I'd rather wait for a few days and have them completely calm than to have them nervous um, or potentially just go away for a while.
2: Right, and they will certainly do that or go nocturnal, David talk to us about stocking what are your
3: what are your thoughts and impressions on that you know, I'm mean, gonna pretty much agree with everything that Randy just said you know uh, and like Randy too you know I'm pretty much hunting one specific buck normally so you know there, there's times when a week goes by when I don't even do a stock so uh, and like Randy said you got to make sure that everything's right when you do it because you know, on a lot of my hunts, I'll go, I've only had like five or seven days to be there. And you can't afford to bump that buck and have him be gone for three days. You know, I mean, you just you just can't do that. The odds of you killing that buck are very, very low. So, But when I first got into uh, archery, you know, in the stocking, I learned really quick that, man, I needed to make, you know, archery my main weapon if I was going to be successful at it. I tried dabbling in it at first. You know, my main th- uh, weapon was rifle. And I was blowing every buck out, Mike. I mean, I was just stalking, you know. As soon as I saw the buck, I'd go after it. So, I mean, I kind of had a crash course on it and I learned pretty quickly, you know. I mean, but there are a couple rules that I kind of go by. Uh, One, I don't or I don't stalk a buck when he's not bedded. I mean, I always wait for a buck to be bedded before I go. And uh, once I do go, I mean, I go because, like Randy said, it's public land. More there's been a lot of times out there when I've ran across other people, you know, stalking the same buck as me. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, Nate Simmons and I uh, ran across a guy in Colorado one year. We had a 190-inch buck spotted. We started that stalk, and we came across this other guy who was doing a stalk on him as well. So we kind of sat there going, okay, what do we do here? So, you know, Nate kind of grabbed the uh, wind cap off the spot and scope, says, okay, this is heads, this is tails. And uh, we let that guy call it, you know, he said heads, and Nate flipped it, and sure enough, it was heads. So he won the rights to stock that buck, and so we sat there and watched him, and he actually did kill that buck. So, But back to the point I was making is on public land, when you got the opportunity, you need to haul butt and get over there where you you know, get close in on the deer. Uh, and then I like to come in from above uh, typically, you know, those thermals in the mountains, uh, you you can't trust them. I mean, they're whipping every which direction, but for the most part in the morning and the evening, they're going uphill. And, uh, those bucks, you know, I mean, they're typically looking downhill or side hill. Uh, sometimes they're looking uphill, but mostly, most of the time they're not. So that's another thing. And one other thing I do is I don't like to get in any closer than I have to. Uh, you know, if my, if, say if my effective range is 40 yards, I'm not going to try to get into 20 yards. I mean, I'm just not going to do that because, one, it's not increasing my percentage of my shot very much at all, but it sure as heck uh, increased my chances of failure. You know, that buck detected me. I mean, you get 20 yards from a buck. I mean, they just – their senses are so, so great. I mean, odds are you're going to blow that. So I just didn't stick back, you know, 40, 50 yards. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And like Randy said, you know, keep it together. Uh, I've seen a lot of people just kind of freak out at the last moment, you know, and uh, just lock up, you know, and they can't even draw their bow back, you know, on the deer. So, you know, just kind of all that tied together. So, one One,
2: one whom you would know. And it was well, one of the questions we asked him. I'll just put that out to you guys. He he act, actually answered it fairly quick, which kind of surprised me. But do you guys have an average – what do you think your average shot distance has been on bucks that you've hard, harvested?
3: 50.
4: Well, I'll go first. Uh, I, I, uh, I have a limit. Um, you know, people, because of my competitive shooting – career and also the fact that I, you know, write articles about archery accuracy and I have for years and years and years, people assume I make long shots, but I have a hard and fast rule that I don't shoot uh, until I get 60 yards. And and normally I'm like David said, you're stalking about this stationary. And uh, so once I get to 60 yards, I, I shoot, that's where I shoot. Um, and you know at 60 yards i feel that i'm well over 90 percent capable well on on the target range i'll never miss the vitals at 60 yards you know but a lot of things happen in the field um you know with with the excitement and the wind and up and downhill and branches and all that sort of thing other deer Um, a lot of things can happen Uh, but i i would say the vast majority of bucks i've killed I killed right at 60 yards because I make myself get to 60 yards and then I typically don't get any closer, but you know, that, that, that depends on for any given person, it depends on their ability. And again, I'm hunting a single deer, so I absolutely don't want to wound that deer. Um, So I get to where I think I'm well over, you know, 90, 95% uh, average average. in my shooting and and that's where I shoot from, but for other people that may not have as much background in 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 shooting that distance you know maybe you know forty yards or fifty yards or whatever it is, but you just need a very very high percentage uh, uh, range for you to shoot one of the things that bothers me most uh, and it's extremely prevalent now is is just people taking these. 80, 100 yard shots and, and you know, because they, they can, after they're warmed up at home, they can, you know, hit a deer in the vitals at 100 yards, you know, half the time. So they, they transpose that to, to the same, they think it's the same in the field and it's not. And even if your percentage, you know, uh, on the shooting range when there's no wind, flat ground, you're not excited, you're warmed up and, and their percentage is 50%. Well, in my opinion, and I've written this many times, my opinion, um, you should take the furthest range that you can consistently hit a deer's vital. Like at 120 yards, you know, on flat ground, everything calm, me warmed up. I can hit the vitals on a deer the vast majority of the time. However, uh, so I I say you you should cut that distance in half in a real world hunting situation, so
1: I've cut it in half to sixty yards. I I was listening to a podcast that you did, uh, Randy, and and it was a lot about a lot more about archery and shooting and being um, being accurate, uh, more so than hunting tactics. But in that in that podcast, you talked a little bit about um, how in today's age with the gear that we have. The majority of the problems are in shooters execution, and 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 you don't have to be quite as fine tuned in your gear because all the gear performs; they're all highly engineered. And um, and you talked a lot about some of the things you said here about execution, but I'm I'm curious in in, in talking about the sixty yard thing. Are there are there hard for you personally? Are there hard and fast rules to it? To where? given the situation and the stalk, are you ever in a situation where you're completely comfortable knowing that you can get 10 or 15 more yards closer and you do that, or are you just stuck right there at 60 because of just your preparation and your mental approach?
4: Well, David uh, David mentioned this earlier, but I'll repeat it for emphasis. Um, the The... The distance that a, a, a mature mule deer buck will tolerate little things, like say a small sound or a small movement, um, isn't linear in my opinion. Meaning that, let's say that what a deer will tolerate at 40 yards is not just twice as much as he'll tolerate at 20 yards. Um, it's, it's exponential, I would say that a deer at 40 yards will tolerate, uh, say, at least four times as much as he'll tolerate at 20 yards. And then, if you you know if you do the same thing and square 60 yards, um, that's that's they'll tolerate 36 times as much. In my opinion, you can get away with so much more, so much more at 60 than you can at 40. Uh, and so much more forty than you can at twenty. Uh, that what happens, just like David said, is when you get close, even if they can't associate any of the the disturbances you're making with a human being, they just won't tolerate. And and I've got this theory, and I don't know if there's any truth to it, but I I, I think there is that the 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 thing that's killed. <laughs> the thing that's killed more old mule deer bucks than any archery hunter is mountain lions and i believe that when you get within say a mountain lion's striking distance and i don't know what it is 20 30 yards depending on the situation uh they don't tolerate anything they just get the hell out of there and you know uh worry about it later um, so when you're at say 40 to 60 yards they are much more tolerant of small uh small noises or, or small movements. So that's the reason I stay back. I rarely, unless it's a great opportunity, I rarely
1: try to get closer. So it's a risk reward proposition. Kind just of like
4: David said, my 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 percentage my percentage of kill doesn't get any higher at 40 yards. Um just because that's so well within my my comfort zone for being extremely accurate that i don't gain a whole lot by getting to 40 but i lose a whole lot
1: makes sense
2: but the, the bottom line is is these deer are hunted from in a lot of states from mid-august like here in utah you know, all the way to, to the first part of November in Colorado, they hunt them all through the, through November in some of these later season hunts. But the reality is, is mountain lions never go away. Them as a predator, they're, they're, there. you know, 24, seven, 365 days a year. And, you know, for, for a buck to reach, you know, six or seven years old and, and grow a massive set of antlers. I mean, he's, he's got to be able to, effectively evade predation and and as we know as as mule deer hunters that's typically um typically a mountain lion i'm not to say a coyote can't take down a mature buck there's been a few documentations but by and large yeah i mean that that is their apex predator and and that's uh yeah that's i think that's very uh very valuable information to those of us that that hunt above timberline especially
1: i I, I,
2: david any any thoughts on that go, go ahead sir. i was just going to
1: say I, one of the things that bef- before david because I, I suspect that whatever he says is going to follow suit with what i'm about to say um i find a, a phrase used amongst my circle of, of friends and we're talking bow hunting whitetails. but it, it I, kind of our common thing that we throw around is you'd never get good at bow hunting you just get less bad with experience
3: Any thoughts on that, David? You want to shut in? <laughs> I agree with the getting less bad. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I, I just – I got to say this. I said it's awful t- 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 hard following up Randy Ulmer, you know, on all these questions. So, because Randy covers everything so darn thoroughly. So, uh, and I appreciate that. So, but, no, I mean, I, I really don't have a lot to add on to what Randy said, you know, other than, like, say, man, just – Back to the yardage thing, you know, I prayed up and blurted out 50 yards, and I would say that that's probably my, my average. Uh, I haven't killed a lot of mule deer with a bow, but the furthest, my furthest shot was probably 60 yards, and my closest was seven yards. So, but the majority of them been about 40, 50 yards. So, uh, the only reason why the one was at seven yards is because he was in, he was about 13,000 feet in the uh, willows. And you just couldn't see anything in there. And I was stalking this buck, and I'd seen him the day before going to these willows. So I went in there, and it was literally one of those things where you're just kind of creeping through there. And I saw his antlers, so I drew back. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? So, you know, I finally made some noise, and he just stood up, and just boom, it was over that quick. So, But I can tell you this, I mean, that buck felt secure in there. Uh, He was not going to leave until I stepped on him. So, but normally I wouldn't even try to get that close. So everything Randy said, uh, there's no reason to get in any closer. So once I get, I prefer to get into 40 yards. I'm not as good as 60 yards as Randy is, obviously uh, not a world-class shooter, but 40 yards. I definitely do not try to get any closer than that.
2: Right. And I, and I think the thing is we know what our limitations are and and we know where our comfort zone is and i i like that i i you know randy knows his that that 60 yard that is a very high percentage shot for him that might not be a high percentage shot for somebody else but but that's why it's critical man to i mean yeah shooting at a target in your backyard is is totally different and i think a lot of these uh, i don't know how you guys feel about a lot of these um these events like your total archery challenge and um, the, the new math uh, mountain archery uh, festival that they have up on this. A lot of times it's, they're hosted at ski resorts and you can kind of, you know, hike down the mountain and be in real, you know, real world situations where you're, you're shooting at angles and and whatnot. Do you guys, do you you guys ever do anything like that or, or any practice like that? Just, just kind of curious more than anything.
3: I mean, I'll go ahead and answer first. I mean, well, David,
4: I, you want to go first?
3: <laughs> you bet. Yeah, I mean, I've never done any of those. Yeah, go I mean, ahead, David. When I lived in Wyoming, uh, I shot league up there for a little bit. And the main reason why I wanted to shoot league is just kind of, I wanted to, I felt like it helped me under pressure. You know, I mean, sitting there shooting, you know, with an audience, uh, I just felt it put that added pressure on me that I wanted so that I could see, you know, what I was capable of. and uh, And I did some of the, you know, uh, field shoots, you know, with your 3D archery targets, did a little bit of that, but I haven't done any of the total archery challenges or anything. But uh, I've got a property down here in Houston, you know, that's set up perfectly for that. So I've got several large targets that I set up on the property down here. So, and I can kind of shoot from any, you know, angle that I need to and in any situation that I need to. So I just do a lot of shooting on my own property down here. But as far as the public events, no, not necessarily. Randy.
4: Yeah. And I've been, yeah, I've been shooting competitive archery forever. And uh, so I've shot pretty much every matter of fact, the uh, very first world championship I won was uh, I was on the U S archery team and and it was Norway and it's uh, it's the feet of field world championship, which they, you know, they still have, but this was um, it's unmarked yardage. And uh they, they they shoot it in the most severe terrain that they can find. We were in the fjords of Norway, so everything was straight up and straight down. And uh so you have to learn, you know, exactly how to shoot straight down, straight up. And and I think I think it's great practice. And as a matter of fact, I have a if you step outside my archery room door here in Colorado. Uh, I have a target that's uh, 90 yards away at a 37 degree angle, straight uphill. 37 degrees is about as steep as you can get without there being some cliff component to it. Um, and then I'll shoot my arrows up, and then I'll go up and 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 I'll shoot them back down. Um, so yeah, it it and and it teaches you how your bow performs straight up and straight down, and also one thing that I'll mention is tilt compensated rangefinders aren't accurate. All they do is tell you the horizontal distance to the target. They don't compensate for uphill or downhill. Um, an arrow obviously because of the, the action of gravity, uh, won't shoot exactly the same 90 to 90 yards uphill as they will 90 yards downhill. And I know that I've been shooting at this target for almost 20 years now. Um, and so you have to know how to fudge your tilt compensated rangefinder. and I do think these these archery vents that they have up in these skeeter lifts, and I do them, and I love them. The only thing I've got against them is they typically have extreme yardages like you'll be shooting at 120 yards. and I think it encourages people to think that that's the norm and that's acceptable. And, uh, and if you keep that in mind, that that's, that's not okay to shoot that far um, in real hunting conditions, I, I think those things are great for teaching you how to shoot uh, under extreme, you know, geographical or extreme ups and downs.
2: Well, your experience in Norway certainly translates into the high country because the, the, you're either shooting i mean correct me if i'm wrong i've hunted the high country i've actually been fortunate to take a couple big bucks in the high country um, and there there generally is no level shots i mean occasionally i guess if you're on the same elevation but it, it's typically straight up or straight down and and i think in most at least my scenarios it's been straight down so um so yeah man what 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 a great experience and i do i concur i think we need to I think we need to rein in this long distance shooting. I think it's kind of getting a little bit out of control. You know, I think there's there's some ethics involved, and I know I know some guys get kind of wound up when you start to even act like you're the ethics police. But I think as hunters, we you know we have a responsibility um, to be a good steward of of these animals and and to make sure that we're you know we're taking some some
3: ethical shots. Yeah, and I think the same thing applies well, to one the, of the things that bothers. So, you know, I mean, my buddy that offices next to me, he's at a long range shooting tournament right now. You know, I mean, uh, he wanted to get qualified with his rifle out to a thousand yards, you know, and we've we've witnessed that out in the field. You know, guys shooting out to fifteen hundred yards. You know, I mean, they think just because they have this, you know, four thousand dollar rifle that can do this, that they can actually do it in hunting conditions. And uh, it's just not true. And like I say, we definitely got to reel that in. It is definitely getting out of control on both archery and rifle. Randy, did you have Well, some? let me
4: say this. Uh, interestingly enough, my, uh, my brother was on the U.S. Our, our US uh, practical precision rifle team uh, that they just went to France for the world championship. And, um, you know, a practical rifle is basically hunting situations. You have to shoot from these various um, positions, and you shoot anywhere from 100 to 1,200 yards. And he actually won the world championship. Um, and yet, so he can, within, you give him 20 seconds, uh, to range, find something to, to set his turret and he's going to hit it to 1200 yards, but he won't shoot a deer past 450 or 500, uh, because there's too many variables and, and, uh, there's no reason. I mean, you can get closer. There's no reason to do that. And some of these people actually, will back up to shoot a to deer just so they can brag about how far they shot. And I just think that's totally unethical. Yeah.
2: Just just because you can doesn't mean you should, I think, is the <clears throat> is the consensus.
1: I think um, that can be said for guys, a I lot kind of things. Guys, yeah,
2: I want
1: to into it. I was just commenting a, it, lot, it, lot, of
2: things a lot
1: of things in hunting. I mean, you know, just because it's legal. There's a lot of things in life that are technically legal that we don't do because they're not the right thing to do, you know.
2: Yeah, and we, 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 we have to self-manage that as hunters. Well, gentlemen, I want to segue into something a little bit different here. I, I recognize that gear and physical fitness is critical um, to hunting in the backcountry. Um, but would you guys can concur that, that these things take a backseat to having mental toughness? Um, talk to us about mental toughness. David, you go first, and then Randy, um, we'd love to hear from you about mental toughness.
3: Okay. I mean, I think they're kind of tied together. And, uh, you know, that's one benefit I had when I took up the ultra running, Mike. Uh, you know, I started running the longer events uh, up to 100 miles, ran a couple of 100 mile events. And uh, I'll tell you, when you're running 100 miles up in the high country, you know, with 20, over 20,000 feet of elevation gain on that run, you know, uh, it's tough. And you're going to see a couple lows during that time when you're on that run. And you just got to keep forcing yourself through that, you know, and saying, okay, just one step at a time, I can get this done. So, same applies to mule deer hunting. You know, I I had a, and I'll give you a good example. I had a friend from Pennsylvania come out and backpack in with me into the remote wilderness of Colorado. And uh, we packed in the day before the opener. And the next morning, he was so sore from getting in there. And he was already mentally shot on opening morning. Uh, He wouldn't even get out of his tent, you know. So I said, okay, I'll go up in glass and kind of see what I can find. So I went up and did some glass and found a couple bucks, nothing that I wanted to shoot. But I thought, okay, these are good bucks for him, so I'll go back and grab him. I went back to camp, and the guy was gone. I mean, his tent was gone, and he, he took a stick and scratched into the ground floor there that went home. So this guy was supposed to be in there with me for a week and he had given up after, you know, one morning, essentially. So and I've seen it time and time again, you know, guys running out of water, uh, just they just can't handle it. Or day number three, they just can't climb that three thousand vertical feet anymore. So the mental game, I feel like is number one. I mean, you, you have a lot of hunters, you know, that can stick it out. Uh, they're going to be successful, whether you know they're fit or not, just being out there in the field. And to kind of grind it out. So to me, that's more important than fitness. But I also think that fitness plays a huge part, especially for me. Uh, once I started running those ultras, I mean, there was no piece of country that was untouchable to me, I felt like. I mean, I could run in 15 miles, scout a place, run back out. You know, I mean, I, I just felt like I could go anywhere and do anything. I could outstock anybody else out there. You know, so I think they kind of both go hand in hand, but I think one isn't necessarily good without the other. So, to me, you've got to have both.
4: Well, I I, I agree with David. Uh, I've been a competitive um, endurance athlete my my whole life. Um, I've always raced at some sort of endurance race, whether it be, you know, uh, long distance mountain marathons or um, for a long time there, I did 24 hour adventure races where you're running through the mountains for 24 hours. And now I race mountain bikes. Um, So what that teaches you is really to endure discomfort and and i think it's really important to be able to endure discomfort and not give up and know that you're going to be okay after it's all over with but one thing i'll say is when i was younger even though i was a lot more fit when i was younger i was so gun-ho that i would race up into the back country and and i would just go crazy trying to find a deer and go up and down, up and down and up and down. And after two or three days, I was exhausted and I would end up just going home. Well, now I'm not nearly as fast as I was in my twenties or thirties, but I can maintain a decent pace. So what I've found is I'm much more patient. I get in the country and the key, almost anybody can get into the country. The key is to get into the country and stay in the country. And, and I watch these people that are competing, uh, with me for deer and they just don't stay in the country. They just, they just end up leaving after two or three or four days. Um, so, and part of it's just having done it a lot, you just get a lot more comfortable. There's a lot of fear and anxiety and homesickness and, and all these weird thoughts that people get when they're away from home, they're up in the mountains, they're all by themselves, the weather's bad, um, they're cold, and and they just want to get out of there. And having done it so much, you're just comfortable being out there, and there's all those anxieties just kind of melt away with time. So I, I think the key is not getting in there fast. I mean, these Instagram heroes that, that are always talking about you know, um, you, you got to go in as far as you can. You got to go in as fast as you can. You have to be this fitness monster and able to be a good bow hunter. Well, that's a bunch of hooey. Uh, what you have to be is you have to be mentally disciplined. And and it's a lot strong. It's a lot easier to be mentally disciplined in in the backcountry if you're fit. But even if you're not extremely fit, you can still be mentally tough. And the key is to stay there because the longer you're there, the more likely you are to be able to shoot the deer that you want to shoot.
2: You know, and I, I've got a, have got ai love, that Randy. I got a, 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 an acquaintance of mine. And if you were to look at this guy, um, I mean, just it, 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 as far as his body shape and his, his BMI, I mean, it's, you know, I, last time I seen him, he was limping a little bit, but I'm telling you, this guy is tough as nails, man. I mean, he is so freaking mentally tough. I mean, you look at a guy like that, and honestly, we would probably judge and say, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think that guy's going to uh, do very well in the high country, but he's just super mentally tough. And, and Locke and I just did a recent podcast with Roland Welker. Roland Welker was the season seven winner of the Alone Series off the History Channel. He spent a hundred days out in the Arctic with very limited survival items. I think they got to pick 10 items. And, you know, as we talk with Roland, I mean, it's the same, same thing applies here, right? We're hunting, but we're also, I mean, here's, this is a guy that actually killed a, killed a musk ox with a, with a, a longbow and then he finished it off by uh well, um, pardon the gruesomeness, but he, he's, he literally stabbed the thing to death to finish it. But, in any case, man, I'm just talking to him about mental toughness. And and I think, you know, when you when you talk about gear and you talk about mental toughness, I mean, I think any of you guys could pick up a different brand of bow and a different brand of backpack and, and you know, hiking boots and 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 equipped with the mental toughness, go into the backcountry and be successful. But you know, you uh, I mean mental toughness isn't, you can't, you can't walk into a sporting goods store and buy that stuff. I mean, you gotta be, um, you gotta be mentally tough. And I think that comes from, um, that comes from experience. Let's, uh, I want to segue into kind of, kind of more of the final part of this podcast. <clears throat> when I, um, when I think about how I became so passionate about mule deer hunting, uh, I reflect back on the stories that that um, the old ones I call them the old ones used to tell around the campfire, um, my my dad, my uncles, uh, my grandpa, my cousins. <clears throat> anyway, I had a grandfather, incredible storyteller. I mean, I, I I could just listen to that guy talk and tell stories for hours. Um, also, had a had a cousin that was an incredible storyteller. And look, hey, as hunters, we 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 probably can be accused of embellishing. I think that's what makes a good story, but, but nonetheless, I don't think there's any hunter out there that doesn't enjoy a good story. So Randy, we'd like to start with you. Tell us about one of your most cherished hunts, one of your most cherished memorable hunts. Tell us the story. And then Dave, we'd we'd like you to follow up with one from you.
4: Well, it would be, but does it have to be a mule deer story?
2: I can do any anything you want.
4: Well, I would have to say um, it would probably be my son's first elk hunt. Well, first archery elk hunt. I think he was 13 or 14 years old, and he, he wasn't very big uh, for his age. And he was shooting, uh, I think it was whatever the legal amount in Arizona, I think it's either 40 or 45 pounds. Uh, And his draw length was about 24 inches. And he really wanted to hunt elk with a bow. So I told him, I said, that's fine, we can hunt with a bow, but I'm, I'm going to be right with you. And and there's going to be a lot of shots that that you think you could take that I won't let you take. And as long as you'll go hunting with me under those parameters. Uh, we'll do it. And he said he would. So the Arizona elk hunt is 14 days long. And, and, uh, we hunted and we got close to bulls, but they would be at the wrong angle or they would be moving. And, and, uh, so he was getting pretty discouraged, but he's, 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 uh, you know, he, he never quits. And, the last we we found a herd of elk out in the middle of nowhere with with a pretty good bull in it like a 350 360 bull which is pretty darn good anywhere but it's pretty decent in arizona so we uh followed this herd and we 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 actually uh the bull would bugle a lot at night but he wouldn't bugle in the day so we would actually kind of follow them at night uh, and we did this for a couple of days uh, just trying to, cause in Arizona, a lot of times the elk are, uh, they don't just stay in one spot. They'll move around a lot. So we followed them, slept in the dirt and, um, uh, and it, he was just, we were pretty much ready to give up, but it was the last day. And, uh, we got out ahead of these elk and, and sure enough, the bull comes in to about 30 yards, uh, stands broadside. So I let Levi shoot and, um, uh, got a complete pass through. The bull died, you know, within sight. And and we were just so excited after 14 days of of, of hunting uh, without ever having been in civilization, especially having slept, you know, following these elk during the night. Uh, it was just such a rewarding hunt for me. And he was so excited. And I, I would think that he would probably think that was his best hunt ever. You know, the, some famous philosopher said, well, I think it was... Teddy Roosevelt said, "The the uh, the more difficult the the trial, the more cherished the uh, the the win or something like that." That's not a direct quote, but it's it's really true. The harder you try for something, uh, if you're successful, it just means so much more to you.
2: Well, wow, that's that's awesome, and I would concur with that. You know, when I when I look at the trophies in on my wall, <clears throat> you know, my my biggest mule deer. Is, is probably not my favorite mule deer. Um, it, it's, it's the ones that you truly have to earn. And I, and it, that was especially successful to, to, to have that, that uh, experience of perseverance with your son. I mean, these, these kids are our future. Um, they're our future leaders in, in, you know, sibling in this great nation that we live in, but also they're the future hunters. They're going to be the advocates that hopefully uh, can hold this all together. So thanks, Randy, for sharing that. David?
3: Uh, as far as my favorite one, it'd be, uh, 2004 in Wyoming. I think it's the buck that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, all these bucks are not necessarily 15 miles deep into the back country. You find them where they are. And sometimes that's very close to the road. Uh, I was camped with a buddy in, uh, the Salt River range there on the Graze River. And we, I, The next morning, we were discussing our plans, and I said, I'm going to get up early, 3 o'clock, hike all the way back into the Divide there in the Salt River Range. Uh, But it rained all night long, you know, and the thought of trudging in there in the mud and everything getting wet, I was just like, man, I don't want to do that. So I ended up sleeping in a couple couple more hours. But anyway, long story short, I got up, I went glassing, and I was just glassing near a road. And... You know, didn't see a whole lot, glassing a couple of miles away. And then finally about nine o'clock in the morning, I glassed up a buck. You know, it like happened so many times before you put the spot and scope up and it just turns out to be a buck. But this one I could tell. I mean, he had a Boone Crockett four point frame on him. I mean, he was he was deep forked, just a heck of a buck, you know. So I watched the buck until he bedded down. He bedded down right next to some stunted quakies that had some yellow leaves on them. So that was my landmark as far as my stock goes. So I kind of loaded up my pack, went and got in the truck, drove down to the next trailhead and hiked in over there and hiked up. And probably three hours later, I was kind of set up probably, I don't know, 300 yards from where this buck was at. So I dropped my pack and started in. And I knew I wouldn't see this buck until I was pretty darn close to him because just the shape of the mountain. So started in on him. The fog came in. So I backed off, Uh, did it again. The fog came in, I backed off. Finally, the third time the fog cleared out of there, so I kind of just kind of go and take a one-step glass and one-step glass, and and finally I could see just the tip of his antler sticking up out of the bushes and uh, ranged him. He was about 156 yards away. So I'm sitting there, standing there right next to a quaky, finger on the trigger, just waiting for that thing to stand up, you know. And, He'd lower his head and you couldn't even see his antlers at all. Then he'd pick him up, look around, and all I could I couldn't even see a hair on him. All I could see is the antlers turning back and forth. It's like, man, that's when I noticed he had several extras on him, you know, that I didn't even see from a couple miles away. So this continued for two hours and thirty-six minutes, I believe uh, in there at 150 yards from this buck. And during that time, I mean, I wanted it to just be over. I mean, I was tired of standing there, you know, against that quakey and I actually picked up a rock at one time and thought, okay, I'm going to throw this over there kind of spook him out. And I'm like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And it says don't rush this or you're going to screw it up. So I put the rock down, you know, I mean, uh, that probably would have ended very badly, but like I say, two hours and 36 minutes later, that buck finally started standing up. And before he even stretched out his legs entirely, I mean, I dropped it right back into his bed. So I was just, I was mentally, even though it wasn't uh, physically tough, it was mentally challenging sitting there watching that thing, just going, oh, my God. You know, because the whole time, all the negative thoughts were entering my mind. You know, everything is going to screw this thing up. So I was so shot. I just walked over to him, set my rifle down next to him, didn't even touch the antlers, walked back, grabbed my pack. And then headed back over to him. And that's when I finally sat there and looked at him and realized what I had there. You know, he's a heck of a deer, uh, over 30 wide. He's got a 203 typical frame. And he's got 30 inches of extra, you know. And I couldn't even see any of that extra from that far away. So, you know, that wasn't my most physically challenging hunt. But that's the one that definitely opened my eyes to, you know, hey, these bucks are not necessarily in the most remote spot. They're where there's no hunting pressure. So, and and since then, I've killed another one, you know, right near a major trailhead. Both of these bucks were near major trailheads, but everybody was hiking right by them. They were just kind of in a tough little spot to get to. And uh, the only way I saw them is being on the next mountain range over glassing back to them. You know, if you were hunting that hill that they were on, you never would have known they were there. So it just goes into, you know, the glassing. And I'm sure Randy feels the same way. I mean. That's the one thing you know that we've got going for us. To me, that's the main thing we have is our glass. I mean, sit on your butt and glass a lot. You're, you're going to let that be the walking for you. You're going to see a lot of deer. So, but anyway, back to that hunt. That that was definitely the most memorable hunt, and uh, I remember it like it happened yesterday. So it was a great hunt. That's the buck
2: that's on the uh, the, the front cover, right? That, exactly. that is him. Yep. Right, it's on the front cover of Public Land Muleys. Guys, make sure you check out David's books; they're a great read. And by the way, Randy Omer has, I believe, some comments in a couple of those books. So, yeah, be what an awesome story! Be sure to check those out. Hey, Locke, I know, I know you don't have any mule deer stories yet, but tell us, tell us your most memorable story. It may, maybe it involves whitetail. I don't know, but I know uh, uh lock is a very
1: very accomplished white tail hunter. Let's well, hear it, brother. I so much like Randy's story. My son is 13 and he he'll turn 14 this, this during this season. And um I guess I have I've got it's hard to narrow him down, but last year we um he was able to take his first deer at all with a bow and it was a nice, you know, shooter trophy whitetail and um it it, you know we hunt so differently than you guys and and you know with whitetail hunting you don't have the visibility and so I think um sometimes the the shock and awe factor of the encounter I feel like without having experienced both is is um it's kind of the interesting part of whitetail hunting because you unless you have trail camera pictures or something you don't know Necessarily, you don't get to analyze and watch that buck and anything it's just there, and you have a short amount of time and in this hunt that that I'm kind of sharing is my yeah, it, as a memorable one it's it very much that way in that we have property here at home, and uh you know being a kid that plays sports and and is involved in in lots of different things it, he he doesn't travel and do a lot of the hunting like that with me so we focus a lot of his hunting here locally where it fits around his sports schedule and school and church activities and things like that and uh, in October of last year we had a couple of bucks on camera uh, that we were kind of following but I didn't have them patterned And, and, and you know down here in the south our rut is really like Christmas time so we have all of really October and November to hunt without any real rut activity and that can be really difficult in patterning deer um because the older, larger bucks are are generally, you know, they got that way for a reason and they're they're kinda hard to figure out until they get really active and searching out those. So I had these two nice bucks on camera, but I didn't I, I would get pictures of them at food sources and things like that fairly frequently, but there was no real pattern to it and it was very little of anything in the daylight. And so he'd been shooting his bow for uh last year was his second year to bow hunt and he he'd gotten good with it good enough that i was comfortable putting him in a tree stand and letting him um you know like randy said we we had an agreement you know you can't just take any shot you think you might could it's gonna have to be the right shot and he was he was good with that well we we go late october last year we had a little unseasonably cool front and i knew the hunting was gonna be good and i was excited because i just thought i'd be able to get him a shot at any deer for his first deer with a bow, um, and and we went on a Friday afternoon, and we got really really close to one of the bucks we had on camera. We actually had him at twenty five yards, but he was facing us, and he couldn't get the shot before the deer left. The next morning, I went in. I, I went in with him, and this hunt is actually on on the Scree YouTube channel. Uh, I went in and I you know film a lot of, of his hunting, and we went into an area where I knew there was a really high chance that in that first hour of daylight, I would catch at least some some does moving through, feeding through this hardwood flat, and and that would present a, likely a high a, a high chance that we would have a, the kind of shot that he needed with his equipment and his range. And we're sitting there, and there was one buck that we had on camera, and it was the one he wanted to kill because it had a really – Uh, unique one side of his rack it was like it got damaged in velvet and it grew a drop tine and a big kicker and it was a real unique buck and we're sitting there and we hadn't seen any deer and it was a really cool morning for october in the south and i was really surprised that we hadn't seen a deer and uh he says daddy here comes a deer and uh i look and he says oh it's a buck oh it's my buck and i'm thinking no way that this deer is on his feet at 8 o'clock in the morning in October in the south, just walking through this hardwood flat. And sure enough, he comes through, and, uh, you know, hes I'm coaching him through every step of the way. And he's like, do I draw my bow? And I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. And he got to where he was going to clear into into an opening between two big oaks at about 25 yards. And I said, okay, draw back. And the deer did exactly what he was supposed to do. He stepped in there. I gave him a little mint you know, and he stopped broadside, and he shot him, and it looked to me, um, you know, I'm looking through the camera, and and, and over the camera, and it looked to me like the shot was a little bit high, and, but as soon as he shot him, you know, it it was a, he hit him, and he was all excited, and you can even hear me on the camera, he's saying, I got him, I got him, and I'm like, hold on just a second, just watch him, because I thought the shot was high, the deer takes off, and he runs 50 yards out into these open hardwoods, and he just starts staggering and falls over right there in front of us. And I'm like, he's 13 years old. He was actually 12 years old. You know, he was about to turn 13. He was actually 12 when he made this shot. And I'm sitting there, and it's just as someone who works so hard to kill big, mature whitetails and how hard it is to do it with a bow and arrow. And this is the first time this little fellow's ever even drawn his bow back at an animal of any kind. And here we have a, a nice trophy, I mean, probably for our area, a really nice buck in the 120s, 130 kind of whitetail in the south. And he's laying dead at 50 yards. And it just, uh, of all the hunting I've done, I, I don't know that, I don't know if I'll ever top that one. You know, I've killed and had encounters with much bigger deer than that one, but that one was really special. So it was really cool.
2: No, that's, that's awesome, Locke. And, you know, I, I, I I love hunting with my kids. Not all my kids are as passionate about hunting as I am, but i got a couple that are, and we've had some pretty, pretty remarkable experiences. And, and, and I'll just quickly share, share you kind of one of my most memorable hunts. Um, it's actually, I'm I'm kind of like David. I, I, I haven't, I mean, I, I haven't archery hunted exclusively. Um, uh, almost like Randy, Randy, I'm sure you've got a, I'm sure you've killed a few animals with, uh, with other weapons beside a bow, but I'm a lot like David. I mean, mine kind of evolved. I, I was a rifle hunter and then I, I did some, some primitive, uh, muzzleloader hunting and then, and then picked up a bow. But about five years ago, I had a bow tag here in my home state and, uh, of Utah. And anyway, uh, I'd been practicing all, all summer and, and was feeling pretty good about the hunt. Well, the day before the hunt, I go to pull my bow out of the back of my truck and it's gone. Um, and I've got a tonneau cover on there. I guess I'd forgotten to, to lock my uh, lock up my, my tailgate. And uh, if you can believe it, I guess some bow hunter out there needed that bow more than I did. And so anyway, I, here I was the night before the hunt and I had no bow. And so my, my nephews had tags. And so I thought, you know what, gosh, this sucks, but you know what, I'll just go up. I'll help them opening day and see if we can, you know, let these, let these kids get a good buck on the ground. And so anyway, we, we went out opening day and I, honestly it, it turned into a scouting trip for me. I was just hoping to, you know, these kids, their standards weren't as high as mine. And so I kind of hope to help them, you know, harvest a, a respectable buck on opening day. And so, Opening weekend just turned into a kind of a helping them and a scouting trip. Hopefully I was hoping to, you know, stumble across a big buck that I could I could uh, get get a new bow and, and get back into the field. And so <clears throat> anyway, uh opening weekend kind of came and went. The following week I I called my uh my buddy um at the local archery shop and I said, Hey dude, I you're not gonna believe what happened. My bow got stolen. I need a new one and uh I'm kind of a Hoyt guy, Randy, I understand you are as well. And anyway, so my buddy called Hoyt and they said, well, we got this one. I said, I don't care what, what it looks like. I don't care what color it was. I can assure you it wasn't pink, but um, anyway, he, he he had the bow shipped. Um, We got it. We got it all tuned up. I got some new arrows cut and, uh, and I, I, I think I shot about 60 arrows through it. I wanted to get that string to settle in. i have been practicing all summer. So I felt good there and had a very similar setup. So anyway, I'm one of these guys that kind of just l- like to let opening day happen. I mean, I generally will hunt opening day, but you know, as Randy said, these deer get pressured and they just change. Right. So I'm a big advocate of, of hunting midweek, especially here in Utah. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I got my new bow got it all sided in got was feeling pretty comfortable about where i was at and i think it was a a wednesday a tuesday night i went out and that night i had an encounter with a pretty respectable buck it wasn't something i was um going to shoot well the next morning i hiked into one of my favorite spots this is a spot that i generally always see some good bucks in. So I, I had really high hopes. I hike into this spot and it's a, it's a nice little hike. I get back in there and, uh, nothing, man. I didn't see even a respectable buck that morning. And so I was really kind of feeling down on myself. You know, I I think that kind of happens to all of us. I think it plays back into that mental game. And anyway, um, this, this area that I hunt is a burned out area. And so, as you can imagine there's tons of feed in there but the shade there's not a lot of shade in there and so there's these deer have kind of figured out that there's some caves in the area there's some um, literal caves and rock outcroppings but in this particular instance there's a big cave and the deer would bed in and i just found that absolutely fascinating and in this specific cave i mean i'd seen upwards of seven or eight deer bed inside this thing. <clears throat> anyway, as I was hiking back to to the trailhead to the truck, I thought I'm gonna swing around the mountain. I'd glass deer in this cave. I, I, I thought it was cool. Never seen a big buck in there. And I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna salvage the morning hunt. I'm just gonna kind of cruise around there again. I just I, I didn't really have high hopes. I just thought it was cool that that there was always deer bedded in this cave. So I kinda I kinda took a detour I went around and I get to, to this, it's about 300 yards away and I glass into this cave and sure enough, there's a, there's a three point buck just chilling right at the mouth of the cave. Well, half of the cave is blocked by brush and, and, and different vegetation. And so anyway, I thought, you know, I'm going to, my, my kids will think this is cool. I'm going to just set up my spotting scope, get the, get the old phone scope on there and, and uh, just film some footage of this deer in this cave. So As I'm getting my spotting scope set up and I go to put my, I go to put my phone scope on the, the, the actual scope during this, this course of time, a big buck unbeknownst to me that was also in there had pushed this little buck out. And when I look back in the spotting scope, there's this giant deer in there. I mean, he's 32 inches wide uh inlines and cheaters on both sides and i just i, I mean it was kind of surreal i just couldn't believe what i was looking at and what's crazy is there's a ravine that comes down from the top of this cave that puts me over a it's, it's about a about a 15 yard cliff down and i'm like you know what this is this stock has been gift wrapped to me i mean this is the perfect stocking situation because the deer was kind of back under the the, the cave And so I thought if I come down, it doesn't matter what my wind's doing. I mean, the wind can be blowing down the canyon. It can be blowing up. This deer's not going to smell me. I'm like, this is the perfect stalking situation. And so anyway, I, I hike back around and I come down and I, you know, I take my boots off and I, you know, I, I hike down and close the distance and, and I get right on top of this, this cliff, this cave where, where this buck's bedded below me and you know how it is i mean david you spoke about this you when you when you're stalking and you get in your your mind starts to play tricks on you and you start to kind of maybe overthink things and honestly i i sat there for about an hour and a half you know i don't i can't see the deer i know he's below me and finally i got thinking you know these deer don't get big by being stupid you know they, they 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 either become nocturnal and they just they know how to evade hunters and so as i sat there i thought man you know i could sit here all day i was prepared to sit there for eight hours uh nine hours but i thought you know this deer could possibly not get up until after dark um and then there was also the thought that while i was stalking over there that the deer got up and left and so finally i made the i made the decision i'm like you know what it's i'm here i have an opportunity. And I'm, I'm going to take, take this opportunity and see what I can do with it. And so I, I ease out to the cliff and I mean, it's, it's straight down. I mean, you, you fall and it's, you know, it's certain death. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty steep uh, cliff. And so I get to the edge of it and I, I pick up a, a rock and I chuck it off. And a, and a two point runs out and he stops and he, he looks up at me. And I mean, there's, there's nothing but me and a cliff. I mean, there's nothing to hide me. He's looking at me and he feeds and looks back at me. And finally he kind of feeds off. And I thought, okay, interesting. You know, then you really start thinking did this, this buck leave. And so I pick up another rock and I, toss it off. And this, this three point, I think it was the original three point that I'd seen in there. I mean, he comes barreling out of there at full tilt, runs down the Canyon, you know, uh, like he'd been shot with buckshot. I mean, he's gone, just leaves. And so by this point, I'm thinking, you know what? I, I, I wonder if that dadgum buck snuck out, uh, you know, he got up and left. And so I really began to question myself and I sat there about another minute and I thought, you know what? I'm, At this point, I'm all in, right? So, I pick up this big rock. It's a book size, a bookend size rock, and I throw that thing off, and it hits. And I mean, all hell broke loose, and rocks were rolling, and I mean, it made a pretty, uh, a a pretty thundering boom, and then everything went quiet. And I, it it felt like minutes, but I think it was about thirty or forty seconds. And I, at that point, had convinced myself the deer had left. And then again, another surreal experience. All of a sudden, that buck steps out, and I mean, I'm 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 15 yards above him, and he looks down the canyon, and I'll just never forget it because he had no idea that that there was about to be some death from above. And anyway, I just I I, I drew back straight with my bow, and then I angled it because it was a straight down shot. And I, I just remember, I still remember the color of the pin. It was green. And when that thing settled into his back about eight inches, I I, I let her I turned her loose. And anyway, it, it smoked right through him like melted butter. And he took off and, and, and running and it's cool because it's a burn, so it was open and I could see. And I watched that, you know, watch that buck run um, about a hundred yards actually. And and he just finally uh, came to a, a stop and he kind of stumbled a little bit and then rolled but um man what an awesome experience and, and at that point that's when the you know the, the shakes <laughs> begin to happen and you realize um what it is you just accomplished but you know I think it's stories like we've all shared that really um really really identify who we are as hunters and 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 for me it's what keeps me coming back right year in and year out where we we, we abuse our bodies and our minds to, to to chase and harvest these animals and it's just just awesome so thanks for sharing those guys uh, those stories guys and i really just want to conclude with this is um you know we've been talking mostly about mule deer where where do you guys and i know op, uh, lock open with with mule deer but where do you guys see the future of mule deer hunting? It, it, it seems, as I mentioned in the beginning, that mule deer herds in the West are struggling right now. Um, what do you guys think it's going to take to have viable populations of, of mule deer in the in the future?
1: David, why don't you go first?
3: Who do you want
2: to you go take? first? Uh, uh, let's go ahead and hear from David, and Randy will have you close us out.
3: Okay uh you know i mean i kind of follow what's going on with all the mule deer herds and and it locked, kind of hit it you know i mean they're definitely on the decline uh but i mean like i said i'm not a biologist so i don't want to dive into any of that but I'm, i just want to kind of hit on the tags and the pressure on these big bucks you know i mean uh i've been hunting these bucks many years in the back country and i can tell you mike i mean you've seen it i mean the pressure nowadays is unbelievable on these big bucks. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know I mean? You, like Randy said, there's a lot of resources out there. These guys can get, I mean, there's books, there's magazine articles, anything you want. Uh, the equipment is that much better. You know I mean? So you've got all these people trekking in the back country that you didn't have years and years ago. And it's just, It's a rat race out there at times. I mean, like that story I told earlier, you know I mean, running across the other guy stalking it, public land can be an absolute zoo out there. So to me, it's all about tag restrictions. And I hate to say that because, you know I mean, Uh, I like to obviously have as many tags as possible, but I think it needs to happen. And especially in certain states like Wyoming, uh, but you mentioned tag restrictions up there. Some of those residents want to hang you, you know, they want to string you up. Uh, because it's something where you can buy a general license over the counter, you know, and you always have been. Uh, but to me, it's, it's I've, I've witnessed it in Wyoming, you know, region H, region G used to be highly coveted tags, uh, extremely, extremely difficult to draw. And then it went through a phase there for a little while where you could actually draw it pretty easily because, I mean, the numbers were down, the trophy quality was down. Uh, you know, to me, it was a shame what was going on. So, uh, it's rebounded a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's just, to me, it's strictly tag numbers because there's so much pressure on these things. And the only way to do that is to, you know, obviously put a limit on the tags for both residents and non-residents. So like I say, I don't want to discuss it from a biology standpoint because, uh, you know, I've got my opinions on that, but I'd rather keep those to myself. But from a tag restriction point, I think that needs to happen. Brandy.
4: Well, my opinion is that um, yes, the milder populations have decreased well let's say over the last thirty years, yes they've definitely decreased um, but what I've noticed more is is over the last especially ten or fifteen years um, there's been a demand for uh, more opportunity hunting everybody wants a tag Um, they say they're not trophy hunters but given the choice between shooting a big buck and a little one they'll always shoot a big buck Um, so what i've seen is just a lot more tags in the areas and and with all the uh, application services there's a lot of people from the midwest uh and the east that are putting in for units out here in the west that really don't know anything about it but but they want to hunt it and they have the right to hunt it uh but there's you know probably 20 or 30 times as many people putting in now as there were 20 years ago so getting a a decent tag is is even tougher but one of the things that the, the main thing i've seen is just the game and fish department's Um, managing away from trophy quality and, and, and just uh, managing for opportunity hunts Uh, here in Colorado. um, So I can kind of lay the blame at the game and fish departments, but, you know, they, they are just doing primarily what the the people want them to do. Um, And as a trophy hunter, um, you know, we, we all want to see more trophy opportunities, but here in Colorado, um, recently they've moved all the rifle hunting seasons back. So the three rifle deer hunting seasons are all pretty much in the rut. So, and, and the, the, the mule deer bucks are very, very susceptible uh, to rifle hunters. I mean, rifle hunters are shooting out to seven, eight hundred yards. And the bucks move down into the, the more open country during that period of time. And they've also increased the tag numbers. So um, what I've found in my scouting uh, here in Colorado is over the last four or five years, the trophy quality has just gone, has just plummeted. Um, very, very few bucks that are say three or four years old survive. So there's extremely few bucks five, six, seven years old, which they need to be in order to be you know, of what we would call trophy quality. And, and the same thing has happened in Nevada where I used to like to hunt. The The landowner tags there have just gone through the roof as far as the numbers uh, because of the system they use um, in determining how many tags a, a, a landowner can get. They're just increase, increase, increase. And the other thing about Nevada is they're, Deer tags that are landowner tags, uh, a, a, a person can hunt the archery hunt, the muzzleloader hunt, or the rifle hunt with that tag. And so what I found over there, and I haven't hunted there in several years just because of this, what I found is, you know, somebody doesn't necessarily, these people that have land landowner tags and can hunt the archery hunt, well, they go out with a bow and, and they're not killing any deer but they're they're not very good at at killing deer but they're really good at scaring deer and so um the 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 archery hunt is very 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 crowded over there when it didn't used to be and most of these guys aren't really bow hunters so um they're just not doing a good job in in sneaking up on this deer but but every deer they see they're trying to sneak up on so the other thing is is that again, with the ri- long range rifles, um, the, the success that they have, they don't have to be good hunters. They just have to find a buck within 700 yards to kill it. So I think a lot of the, uh, problems that we're having as far as trophy hunting, and that's kind of what we're talking about has more to do with, with the game and fish departments and their, their movement away from trophy quality areas and, and more into opportunity areas.
2: A great great point, gentlemen. And I and I concur with both with what both of you have said. I you know, when you when you think I mean we all wanna we all wanna kill trophy bucks and I I think it's important to understand that <clears throat> hunting is definitely a privilege, not a right. I mean, um, you know, in a perfect scenario we'd all have a tag every year and we'd all get to go hunt and without any pressure, but you know, I I've just the past couple of years, especially here in Utah, I've had some really bad experiences. I mean, it's just it, it's a circus out there. I mean, it it's 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 so bad that it's like, man, I'm not I, I'm not even having fun. This just is fun, you know. And <clears throat> my kids have had tags and and thankfully Utah responded to that and they cut tags this year, which is it is, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword right it, it, it sucks because that mean means fewer people get a hunt but hopefully those people that do draw a tag um have a more quality hunt and i think that's i think that's what we're talking about here and you know david you mentioned this too <clears throat> i mean the reality is you know with i mean outfitters are incredibly good at what they do um and this is a compliment to them um you know, public land hunters are, are incredibly good at what they do. We have some amazing gear. I mean, optics are as good as they've ever been. We have bows that are capable of shooting, um, you know, out to 120 yards. Again, not saying that we should, we have long range rifles. We, I mean, with the technology that we have and the pressure on these deer is they just, frankly, they just don't have a freaking chance, you know, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And I think, I think at some point there has to be some, some self-management. I think this is where uh, we as hunters have to be. um, We have to have a voice. We need to be actively involved. And, and, and thankfully, like here in Utah, they have a rack committee and the public's able to put, you know, um, contribute um, comments and, and sometimes they listen to hunters and, and, and sometimes they don't, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I think the, I think the important thing is, is that we, we let our voices, um, be heard because mule deer are, you know, uh, they are being threatened and uh, it's getting progressively harder. Like Randy said, I mean, these tags, the landowner tags, the price of these landowner tags have increased significantly. I mean, we got governor's tags that are selling here in Utah in excess of $400,000. I mean, um, there's, there's a pretty, pretty high price on the head of trophy mule deer. Um, And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have these things. And I'm not I'm not saying um that um we shouldn't have the equipment that we have, but at, at at some point, you know, where do we where do we draw the line? Yep.
1: I think I think Mike that, that I mean we're talking about mule deer, but a lot of the general sentiments that you shared are prevalent across the country for lots of different species and seasons. Um it's always kind of baffling to me when i i look at what's in the media as far as the outdoor industry and there's always a tremendous push for getting people involved in hunting and passing on the traditions and heritage and all that and and that's always followed up with uh, a sort of uh, feeling that there's less hunters that, that 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 where people aren't hunting and where losing but from the out we're losing hunters and licensed purchasers and there's even some data that supports that but i think all of us in this conversation and many others that i've had with other with other hunters and outdoorsmen are we're seeing more hunting pretty much everywhere there's more people hunting and putting in for draw tags all across the country and as hunters we want that growth um we want that economy we want all that but we have to handle it responsibly um we're seeing it in in spring turkey hunting big time all across the country uh so yeah I, I, it's it's a it's a strange thing to me because i i i can say in all of the hunting that i do um i hear all of these things in the media about you know there's less people hunting and there's less license sales but i don't experience that in the real world I see more people hunting, the price of private land acquisitions going through the roof, the the ability to draw tags is, is harder because there's way more people entering these lotteries and, and so on and so forth, and I think that you're 100% right, Mike. The the only thing that we can do is to be advocates for responsibility amongst our hunting public because if there's going to be more people, we have to offset that somehow because I don't think it can be done through legislation, you know, Um I don't know how it could be done through legislation you, with the with everybody having a different take and a different reason for, for why they're out there hunting. We want a trophy hunt, and this person doesn't, the, uh, legislation doesn't intervene in between those two ideas. So we have to be self-governed, and um, all we can do is advocate for that.
2: Well, that's well said, Locke. And I, I agree, man. I'm, you know, we, I think the last thing we need is more legislation. I I, I think as hunters, I mean, we, <clears throat> we are ultimately the the conservationists um, and, and we, you know, collectively we have the loudest voice. We just need to make sure we get involved and, and uh, let our voices be heard. Well, gentlemen, this is uh, kind of concludes our podcast. I want to, I want to give you guys the last word. I know, I know we've talked a lot about gear and, tips and tactics and stories and a whole whole casserole of different topics but i want to want to give you guys the last word maybe listeners that are are just getting into mule deer hunting or or tactics or conservation um i want to give you guys kind of the last word maybe maybe even some advice for for those that are just kind of um new to, to to archery hunting um, mule deer in the high country, what, what advice would, would you give them? David, I'll have you go first, and Randy will have you uh, close us out. Uh,
3: just two things. I mean, one is obviously be persistent, Mike. I mean, it's uh, I think Randy kind of hit on that earlier. You, know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of guys that get out there, and, you know, it's tougher than they think it is. It's easy to sit around, you know, and say, okay, I want to go out west, do a hunt. And then you get out here and the reality sets in about day number three. You know, you can't even get up out of bed that next morning. So uh, you, but you have to be persistent. So that's that's one of the main things. And but the w- number one thing I would say is your optics. I mean, I can't t- tell you enough on that. You know, last year I got the Swarovski BTX and Man, I don't know if you've ever looked through that thing before, but it is amazing at how far you can see and how much you can see. And I bought that extender for it this year, so we'll see how that goes. But it it gives the hunters such a huge advantage to sit in one spot and glass several mountains at the same time. You know, I mean, you can cover so much country with these things. So I guess that's the biggest part of advice I have is, you know, buy the best objects you can have and use them and use them all day long. Don't just glass in the morning and the evening. I mean, I spot, I've killed two of my larger bucks uh, at noon. You know, I mean, I spotted them midday so you know, they're getting up throughout the day. Sometimes they don't, sometimes they do get up and stretch, use the bathroom, whatever, but just man, be looking through that glass all day long, you know, and you're going to see stuff. So uh, be persistent, look through your glass. And uh, but that's the best advice I can give anybody.
2: And follow Randy Homer wherever he goes. <laughs> that's
4: that's <laughs> solid advice right there. Oh, well, there's plen- <laughs> well, there's plenty of, but you're gonna have to get in line. <laughs> um, I want to talk about something else. I've had this idea for years, and it's not about hunting mule deer specifically, but I, I want your guys' in- input on it, and, and it's about the subject we just talked about. Um, I've had an idea for years uh, because there's always this this almost adverse, adversarial relationship between opportunity hunters and, and trophy hunters, and the opportunity hunters seem to almost always win. Um, but I there seems to be a very very simple solution to it and I've never heard anybody else mention it and I think if we could get it out there maybe perhaps um, it would help us people that you know enjoy chasing older age class mule deer but my my idea is is let someone choose okay let's just pick the state of Colorado let's there's there's so many people that want to come out here and hunt every year or there's people that live here that want to hunt every year. And my idea is this, let's choose so many units, say the best genetic units, say 20% of all the units in Colorado, and let's designate them as trophy units. Now, a lot of states have done that, designated certain trophy units, such as Arizona on, on the strip and the Kaibab. But what they don't do is they don't force you to choose between whether you're a trophy hunter or an opportunity hunter. And almost every opportunity hunter I know puts in for the trophy unit first cl- first choice. Cause even though they say they're opportunity hunters, they really want to shoot a big buck too. Almost every hunter given the choice is going to shoot a mature deer versus a forked horn. But if we forced people to choose, okay, I'm a trophy hunter. I'm only going to put in for trophy units. I can't put in for, Um, I can't put in for opportunity units, but I'm willing to wait for three or four or five years to get a tag. But if I'm an opportunity hunter, I can go hunting every single year. Um, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the opportunity to trophy. And if we would do that and just, and just separate out units and, and always take the best genetic units, um, for the trophy seasons. And, you know, each game and fish department could determine what percentage of their units they wanted as trophy units. And that could be distributed according to how many people choose trophy hunting versus uh, opportunity hunting. But it seems like a simple solution to keep us trophy hunters happy and to keep the opportunity hunters happy. And anyway, it's something I just have always thought about and I've never seen it. And I just want to put it out there for people to think about.
2: And I, and I might get a shellacking for this, Randy, by the way, I concur wholeheartedly. Um, I think there's already States that are doing that, but the problem is like in Utah, I mean, you get your cake and eat it too. You get a put in for a general season and, and gain points, preference points. And you also get a put in for the limited entry units, which are trophy units. And the problem is I also, I would add to, so we can also have some in between, right? That it's we issue more tags. There there is trophy potential, but it's not as high as say you're super limited. I mean, you take a you take a unit, you take some of our top units in, in Utah, which I would I would say is the Pontigant, Henry Mountains, and the Oak Creek unit. Okay. It, it's ridiculous. On some of those units, total tags through archery, muzzle loader, and rifle are like 50 tags. So you're not talking about you know you're not talking about 10 points you're talking about like max 20 21 points now utah does have a true um, bonus point system where you you can get lucky and draw anyway you know anywhere along the way in contrast to colorado where they're only going to pull you know from the from the max bonus points and then they go down from there but um no i think i think there's some value in that i think we really have to decide we, we, we should, we have to choose. Are we, a, are we a trophy hunter? And frankly, and, and again, I might get a shellacking for this, but I, I really think, and this is unfortunate. And it really is. But I think t- in today's world, if you're, if you're hunting, it's you're, you're not hunting for, for me. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, by the time you, you calculate all your expenses, I mean, it's just not practical to go out and hunt for meat. And so I think there's frankly, a lot more trophy hunters than, than, then we realize, and I, I think as trophy hunters, we need to um, we need to recognize this and, and, and be an advocate for it. I'm certainly glad Utah has, has listened to hunters and, and reduced some tags, but yeah, I, I think there could be both Randy. And I think there should be both, right? We should, we should provide opportunities for those that want to just go out and, and have the experience. And I think for a lot of guys, I mean, yeah, they would rather shoot the bigger buck, but them they just want to go out they want to have the experience and 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 they should be afforded that opportunity but i think that there's yeah i think i i don't think it has to be one way or the other i think there could be a happy uh medium in all of this well, what final well, thoughts
1: yeah I, I want i want to i'll wrap it up with with one thought because i can't really i mean what what randy said sounds um very logical to me, but in my world, where we're at there's too much fragmentation of private and and public lands are small and, and you couldn't do that in in units because then you're legislating private landowners and that's a whole nother you know ball of wax that we can't really get into but one thing that I can say um is here locally, I have recently like in the last week seen where collectives and organizations that, that approach legislation uh, legislators the right way with persistence and with logic and, and educated opinions, and they do it the right way, they can have an influence. We've had uh, a, a, a rule change on a local um, public hunting area here close to my home, and, and I can't say with certainty that uh, all of the direct influences, but I know – um, some things that I've been involved with have been influential in getting this change made for a long time, and but we've done it the right way. We haven't, you know, uh, been aggressive or illogical. Um, from from that standpoint, uh, I want to th- I, I want to believe that we've had an influence and we've finally gotten the change. That uh, without going into the the, the whole thing. We finally gotten a change on that piece of public property that that allows the kind of access and opportunity that the taxpayers should have in this area and so i i think that that can work um uh, if it's done the right way and i think if people who are um committed to it will will find a way to do that and do it the like i said the right way there's a right way and a wrong way to do all of those kind of things and um It's just a kind of a a, a positive story that I can share in that regard where I feel like outdoorsmen and collectives of outdoorsmen um, are able to have their voices heard and have a good thing happen for public access and and hunting. So um, there is light at the end of the tunnel, I guess, to say, uh, potentially. Uh, But I I can't speak for for the 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 units.
2: and the common theme is to get involved, man. Get involved. I mean, um, you know, we 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 all have our we have we all have our complaints, but but they they mean nothing unless we um, you know unless we have a voice and we let our voices be heard collectively as as uh,
1: yeah.
2: as conservationists, as hunters, as sportsmen. So, well, gentlemen, this uh, this concludes our our podcast for today, man. It's been an an, an honor, uh, Randy, to finally get to know you um david once again glad to catch up and and um i know you guys both have hunts so randy you've got a hunt coming up here pretty soon and and david you as well right
3: yep i'm headed out to Colorado awesome. next week
2: awesome well man best best of luck to both of you i mean there's there's very few things in life that are certain but one thing's certain death taxes and randy omer and david long are going to kill some some big bucks so uh we, we we got high expectations for you guys i i want to apologize to any of the guests that thought they were going to tune in and, and get gps coordinates to to where david and 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 randy hunt but uh just ain't going to happen but gentlemen it's been an honor and and privilege to to uh to visit with you guys today
1: yes sir
3: enjoyed it thank you
4: well mike and lot thanks for having me i appreciate it
1: yes sir well good luck yeah, to you it was guys our honor Thank you guys for listening, and uh, we cur- encourage you to, uh, to reach out, communicate with us, let us know how you like the podcast, different guests and topics that you'd like to hear. Uh, we love hearing from you, and we really appreciate you tuning in. You've been listening to the Scree Country Podcast.